Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap. Um, unless you know how to go out and gather greens, you may, maybe they're labeled as weeds, but you go out and grab some greens um, from either your indoor or outdoor garden and just scramble with them some eggs. So that's one way to have some really cheap and healthy food. Um, and um, later in the show, I'm going to be joined by Mike, Michelle Bruin. Uh, she has the website Forks in the Dirt. And we're going to share information about gardening, raising chickens, and more. And so after this deep cold, we just need to be thinking a little bit, or not we need to, but thinking about summer can kind of warm us up a little bit. But right now, I want to connect what is happening with farmers in India to a story of a cat who made a home in a library in Iowa. Now, what possible connection could there be between a cat in a library in Iowa in 1980s and Indian farmers in 2020? Um, So here's some background. Um, So for about six months, farmers in India have been protesting. Um, This week, they're blocking trains um, and they're trying to stop some laws that say will make them poorer and at the mercy of large corporations. On February 13th, police in India arrested and charged with sedition Disha Ravi. She's a 22-year-old climate activist with ties to Greta Thunberg. Her crime? She helped create an online toolkit that um, that talked about these farmers' protests. So I want to read right now from that toolkit. This is a document meant to enable anyone unfamiliar with the ongoing farmers' protest in India to better understand the situation and make decisions on how to support the farmers based on their own analysis. As per the agricultural census of 2015-2016, the majority of land holdings in India – are small and marginal. They are less than two hectares in acres, and that's about uh, five acres. So they're about five acres. And these household incomes are already below what they spend on consumption expenditures. In other words, their bills are higher than their income. These historically marginalized farmers were first exploited by feudal feudal landlords and colonizers pre-independence and by globalizing and liberalizing policies of the 1990s And they are the backbone of the Indian economy even today. Despite thousands of suicide caused by indebtedness and lack of structural support, an absence of solutions to deeply rooted problems has further exasperated the new farm laws that were passed by that were passed without any input or consultation with the farmers. These farmers, 86% of them, still provide the majority of Indian population's daily food consumptions, consumption. So instead of being supported to become self-reliant and prosperous, a majority of farmers are increasingly being subjected, subjected to the control of large corporations and international institutes whose sole focus is profits and necessarily involves increased exploitation of nature. The same destructive forces that are destroying the planet are the ones taking over the lives of our country's most populous and most important demographic, subjecting them to increasing hegemony and repeating patterns of privatization seen across the globe. This is not about one country and its oppressed people. It is about common people across the world having the opportunity to be self-sufficient, feel secure about providing for their families and living well on their own terms. And um, and this is what any democracy should facilitate. So these Indian farmers are gaining uh, worldwide support. I mean, Canada, um, Justice uh, Trudeau came out and um, 
He said that uh, Canada will always be there to defend the right of peaceful protesters. Um, in response, the Indian government um, told them that uh, it was an unacceptable interference in our internal affairs. Um, the Super Bowl ad um, in on February 7th, Sikh farmers in California's Central Valley, they funded a 30-second ad which ran during the Super Bowl to support the farmers protesting in India. Okay, so how is this connected to a, a cat who lived in a library in Iowa? Um, I, this was a free book uh, uh, out there, and it's, it, the book is called Dewey, the Small Town Library Cat, Who Touched the World, and it's by Vicki Marone. Uh, it was written in 2008. So um, this the book is uh, it's nonfiction. Um, it sold over a million copies, and it talks uh, about a librarian who found a little kitten in the book return slot. And um, this kitten was found on a day that was 10 below zero. So the kitten almost died, of obviously. Um, and but, but what the kitten did, the, the kitten ended up becoming a permanent resident in the library. And, uh, you know, it had a kind of a magical way of just connecting with humans. Um, but Dewey, the small town library cat, is also a story about farm consolidation and how it hurt communities. So um, the author grew up um, with only an outhouse for a bathroom um, in a in a very small town. But she describes a pretty happy childhood. Um, she said there was always enough kids around to play baseball. Um, but then this idea of farming efficiency grew. Um, and the, um, the farmers were told to get big or get out. Uh, they bought each other's lands. There were bigger and bigger farms. And so her school closed. The small town um, pretty much a ghost town. And the only thing left about from the house that she grew up with was a small driveway. Um, even the creek's path was authored, uh, was altered. So the story of Dewey um, takes place during the 1980s farm crisis. And uh, 1980, um, um, just to give you a little bit about what was going on in the farm crisis, I'm going to read from uh, PBS in Iowa. So... The farm crisis of the 1980s completely altered the fabric of rural America. During the 1980s, American farmers confronted an economic crisis more severe than any since the Great Depression. Agricultural communities throughout the Midwest and across the nation were devastated. Families were forced from the land, lenders collapsed, and businesses on rural Main Street closed, many to never reopen. It was a decade of turmoil and activism. Waterloo, Iowa, for example, lost 14% of its population in the 1980s, and scores of homes were left abandoned. Uh, here's a quote from Congressman Jim Leach. Uh, he was in the U.S. Um, House of Representatives from 1977 to 2007. In the 1930s, everyone in America suffered. Urban people, rural, rich bankers, the poor farmers, everyone lost massively. Everyone was living close to survival, and it meant a kind of national unity. But with the farm crisis in the 1980s, basically it was only the farmer. And this meant the farmer was alone in an, island, in an island of difficulty. And that's really something that eats at the soul because something deeper is part of that um, general phenomenon. So the farm crisis in the 1980s accelerated a long-established trend of farmers leaving the land and farmers being um, consolidated. So here's a statistic. In 1935, the number of farms in the U.S. Uh, reached a high of 6.8 million, 6.8 million farms. By 1990, there were only 2.1 million farms, and a big decline happened in the 1980s. 
Um, some people may remember the tractorcades to Washington, D.C. in 1979 and 1980. And those tractorcades were probably similar to what the Indian farmers um, are doing right now. Um, and actually, I, I actually was in D.C. in 1980. So, yes, I'm kind of old. But um, but we were on a family vacation um, and uh, went to D.C. and there was this incredible snowstorm. <laughs> And from my perspective, I didn't mind eating uh, food from the gas station. It was it was fine. And unfortunately, our hotel room was was heated and warm. But these tractors actually um, they rallied and they were actually uh, plowing the streets. Um, so there's there's this atmosphere of um, community atmosphere of um, supporting each other. Um, so now I want to go back um, to the cat, um, back to the cat in the library at Spencer, Iowa, and so. Vicki Marone, and again, she grew up in a really small town. She was a farmer's daughter and and um, went back to Spencer, Iowa, found a cat, a little kitten in the book in, a, in the book return slot. and then um, and then the, that cat became part of the library. and then she wrote a book about it, which sold over a min- million copies um, about uh, twenty years ago or something. but but one of the things she talked about was the cat's ability to connect. And so um, there were people that would be going to the library, and they're looking for jobs, and there's no jobs to be found. They're in, they're in this incredibly disruptive time, and she could see in their face how it was wearing on them. And then the cat would come up, and the cat would just, you know, do what cats do, and somehow there was a little smile. And how the, the cat um, really increased um, participation in the library, it went up, you know, like doubled. But it was something that the cat brought with the atmosphere and how important having that atmosphere is in tough times. So I'm going to end this um, with, with two pieces of kind of some good news. Um, on the USDA's website right now, um, it said that um, after decades of decline, the number of family farms has grown by 4%. I also now want to turn to uh, um, Johnson County in um, Iowa. Is um, They passed an ordinance um, um, asking for a moratorium on new and expanding factory farms. Um, now, again, this is going to be a long, a long haul, but I'm going to, I'm going to read from an editorial uh, written by uh, Food and Water Watch and uh, Sandra Elper, and she's a member of 100 Grannies for a Livable Future. I like that name, 100 Grannies for a Livable Future. But here's what they were saying about uh, factory farms. At one, factory farms render our rivers too dirty and dangerous for water supplies. So because of the manure issues, um, in 2020, the Des Moines River is having uh, problems because of blue-green algae. And that's connected to the, the, the concentration of factory farms. They say factory farms put the health of the community at risk. And we all saw that with the meatpacking problem. We have this incredible consolidation um, in, in meat right now and, and how how much how many health problems are a result of that so-called efficiency. It might be efficient, but is it effective at, at creating a community that we want? As effective as a cat might be in a library. But um, what's more is factory farms are bad for business in our state. Since factory farms monopolized Iowa's egg sector, the state lost more than 85% of its small and medium-sized hog farms. Those lost farms were economic pillars for many rural communities, and rural voters know this. Uh, recent polls showed that 88% of young people and 82% of independents um, support a moratorium on factory farms. So the fight is universal. It's, it's Indian farmers, and it's, 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 it, and, it's, it's, and it's farmers in Iowa, and it's a cat. <laughs> I think it's a cat. <laughs>
<laughs> Anyhow, you're listening to Food Freedom Radio. We're going to be back and we're going to talk about gardening. Um, have an awesome day. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, um, where we plan to nurse the seed of uh, plan and nurse the seeds of change. Um, with us right now is Michelle Bruin. Um, hi, welcome to uh, Food Freedom Radio, um, Michelle. Thank you for having me, Laura. Well, thank you for your time. And um, so, tell us a little bit about yourself. You've got a website called ForksInTheDirt.com. Yeah, so I think really why I started that was to kind of keep myself involved with local food and be able to share kind of what I've learned about growing your own and knowing your farmer with um, my neighbors. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, um, so it's it's been cold and crazy outside. And so, I mean, I think we're all just itching to get in the garden and feel that summer sun. Um, oh, how yeah. about you? <laughs> Absolutely. I think this is probably the most wonderful time of the year to be a gardener. I mean, everything is possible, right? Dreams are big. There's no mosquitoes. There's no tomatoes with diseases yet. (laughs) I like that. Dreams. So what are your dreams for the summer this year? Oh, man. Well, I actually installed um, a new front yard garden. Mm. So I'm excited about that. So I'm going to be expanding a little bit there. You know, you got to go where the sun is. So I'm expanding there and then trying a couple new varieties of things. And I know, I mean, not that I do much on Facebook, but there's been some problems with front yard gardens. Uh, we did a story um, in Falcon Heights. I mean, some people were upset with front yard gardens. And I mean, it's... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a change for some people. And I think it just, it's really um, dependent on your city. And, you know, definitely look into your your city ordinances and, and HOA information. But um, it's a definite option for a lot of people in Minnesota. Well, and that's that's. Um, I mean, there's there's so much um, to the local food movement that really makes sense. And so, one one of the things I'm going to just start with is you had a nice article on about hundred mile meals. Um, and so, most of us know that we've heard this statistic before. That's uh, that the it takes on average any food you get from a grocery store travels about fifteen hundred miles before you find it on a shelf. So yeah. I know. I mean, you start. I mean, and some of the statistics on your website I thought was really interesting. I didn't even know this that garlic from China. So ninety percent of the garlic comes from China. You know, that's five thousand yeah. miles away. <laughs> yeah, and you know, we just don't know how it's grown over there. There aren't a lot of regulatory um, pieces in place to find out how things were grown, and then not to mention the carbon footprint from shipping it that far. And plus, garlic is really an easy plant to grow. <laughs> On your on your own, it has like no pests. Um, it's not going to get eaten by the rabbits and stuff. So you can even stick it into your um, your regular landscaping. And plus, I mean, we've we've had garlic fest on. I mean, there's a lot of Minnesota farmers that are really trying to create a Minnesota-based garlic uh, industry. But so, how do you grow garlic? What do you do? Um, well, garlic is planted in the fall. Um, so you uh, plant the individual bulbs in the fall. It has to overwinter here. Um, and these are hard neck varieties of garlic that we can grow up here in Minnesota easily. Um, then it'll come up and it's one of the first beautiful things to shoot up in your vegetable garden in the, in the spring because it's kind of at that point almost acting like a perennial. Um, and then you get to cut the scapes come middle of June sometime or July. And I mean, garlic scapes are a whole nother Mm-hmm. <laughs> wonderful 
kind of benefit from that. And then you will harvest the bulbs in the fall once you see the leaves starting to um, yellow, and then you replant again in October. Wow. Okay. And so how, have you been growing those consistently? Or I mean, how long have you been growing um, your garlic? Yeah, I think, I think three years now is how, how long I've been growing garlic here. I've been um, fortunate to know a farmer that grows some pretty great garlic too. And I think that's a really big part of, you know, local food is kind of, you can't, most of us can't grow it all yourself. Right, <laughs> so, without a doubt. you know, there's a grow your own and then knowing your farmer, I think is a big part of local food. Well, and I don't even know if I want to fess this up, but I tried growing garlic, but I, my my gardens can get kind of messy, and I can put things down there. It's like, and then and then I, I I I, I have a fancy name of permaculture, but it's, <laughs> but it's like, and I know you know, like like the, my onions, they've been coming up for twenty years, so I know those really well. And there's some plants that I really know, but it's like these, you know, I wasn't sure which ones or the gardens, the garlic probably got crowded out by other things. So, um, but yeah. And, and then, so one of the things is that most of the raspberries come from Mexico. That's 2,000 miles. And I know we've been growing raspberries yeah. for 20, 30 years, and they're, they grow so easily in this area. In fact, they become a, a weed almost. Or not, I don't right. want to say a weed, but they can spread and become problematic. Yeah. Yeah, definitely they need to get, you know, kept in check a little bit. But raspberries are one of those things, too, that they're really not meant to travel. <laughs> so half the time when we get those little packages of raspberries, you know, they're plastic packages and um, often not really recyclable. Some of them are becoming more recyclable, but so often, like at least a quarter of them are really not in great condition by the time we get them or... And that's just so much adding, adding so much more to food waste. It's adding to food waste, and also a lot of it seems to go into the appearance of the raspberry instead of the flavor. And I know you also read about children and gardening and children and raspberries. I mean, they just go together, oh, don't they? Absolutely. I think you know, kids in the raspberry patch—they um, don't care if they get a couple scrapes from some <laughs> from some thorns either. They will go for that raspberry that you can't get to and pick yourself. But yeah, kids love picking the food, um, any food from the garden, but I think, you know, berries especially. That I can usually always get my kids to help me pick raspberries and strawberries and, you know, the fun things like carrots that are like a present coming out of the ground. You don't know what you're getting. <laughs> well, and one of the well, reasons one of the reasons I want to do this show is because why don't we have this permaculture, these raspberries all over the Twin Cities, uh, be safe lawns all over the Twin Cities instead of, you know, sterile, monoculture, uh, toxic, um, evasive, yeah. um, short little all consistent color stuff that's, you know, really um, yeah. important to some people. But I... Absolutely. And I think, you know, mentioning front yard gardens earlier on, I think that that's a way to incorporate, you know, using some more of our space that we've got, um, you know, and converting it into things that produce for us rather than, you know, take energy to maintain without getting anything back to us or the pollinators around us. Um, yeah. yeah, it makes a big difference in the long run. It really does. And so there's a lot of reasons for these local foods. And um, number one reason, exhibit A, taste. The taste of a real oh, tomato. Oh, for sure. Yeah, right. The tomatoes you get in the grocery stores, I mean, especially in a Minnesota winter, right? There's just no comparison. Um, wow. There's no comparison, which is why, um, you know, another part of eating local is preserving food that when it is in season, you know, you preserve it then when it's at the like peak of its freshness and flavor. 
And I think that's definitely something you can do pretty easily, especially with like tomatoes. If you take them from your garden or get a, you know, an extra big batch from your farmer at a farmer's market and freeze them whole, um, there's nothing like eating like a defrosted frozen whole tomato in the middle of winter. It like the flavor is still there. It's so amazing. <laughs> it is amazing. It's it's great. I uh, one of the thing that I've done for years, and I I did this with um, we did it with Open Door even where we cooked together and uh, made. Um, I don't know, uh, maybe three gallons of it is just take um, tomatoes and zucchinis and um, uh, some seasoning and just boil it in a pot, kind of make a, 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 a sauce-like thing, and then put that in the freezer and pull that out. And you can mix it with, uh, I could mix it with turkey and potatoes. You could mix it with other uh, vegetables to make a sauce. You could use it with uh, lentils and barley, you know, there's, but just to be able to use yeah. that year round. So we're going to take a bit of a broke, break <laughs> and, uh, and we'll be right back with Food Freedom Radio. We're talking with the uh, person who does ForksInTheDirt.com, Michelle Bruin. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we plant and nurse the seeds of change. Um, I'm Laura Hedlund, and joining us by phone right now is Michelle Bruin. Michelle um, has a website called Forks in the Dirt, and we're just talking about gardening and the importance of local food. And uh, before we went on break, we talked about uh, raspberries from Mexico. They're traveling 2,000 miles. Instead, we can just plant them in our own yard and all the benefits of local food. And we've talked about taste, and but also nutrition. I mean, one of the things you mentioned on your website is that food loses nu- nutrients after it's harvested up to 30% in three short days. So, I mean, that yeah. once, once you're tasting something fresh, it's just a completely different experience, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, you know, we can definitely taste the difference when things are grown locally and it's fresh. But somehow I feel like our bodies know the difference, too. Like They can just tell inherently when something has got um, enough nutrition in it. Um, we are satisfied quicker as well. Um, and I think that that makes a big difference. That's also another reason for kind of flash freezing some of the berries and vegetables that come out of our gardens in the summer because it's going to be a lot easier and a lot more cost-effective to eat locally year-round. Even in Minnesota, it really is attainable um, if we're preserving some of those foods as they become um, harvested. Yeah. And, of course, when we're growing local foods, we're lowering our carbon footprint. Oh, huge. I mean, the the amount of travel in those 1,500 miles, you know, on average – think about that not just for like what you mentioned like raspberries and garlic but for kind of every single thing we take off the shelf in a grocery store that it's traveled that far um, and what it would look like if we kind of swap out some of those products for local and especially like meat Um, there's some really great local meat producers as well as vegetables and fruits and and some dairy farmers that are are doing some really good things here too locally and you know I just we are in such a unique position here in the Twin Cities compared to a lot of other um, urban, like, city areas where we're not next to, like, mountains or desert or ocean. We've, we're surrounded by 
farmland. And it's just such a wonderful, wonderful spot to be in. And it makes eating local a lot easier for us, even though we're up north. (laughs) Right, it does. And we have wonderful local businesses, Ferndale Turkey, Tullivson's uh, Pork, that um, have stayed in business uh, for generations. And um, so supporting those businesses are vital to our local economy. And, you know, um, we know we we give it a, a boost when we're buying local from each other. We we create a more abundant world. Absolutely. And, um, you know, there's also a way to support local if you don't have time to go to those farmer's markets every time or or grow enough of your own food to make it worth your while. Um, CSAs are another way that um, we can really support our local farmers, and that's community-supported agriculture. I'm sure you guys have talked Mm -hmm. about that a lot here, too. Sure, of course. Um, yeah, there's a there's yeah a lot of great um, farms that are offering that, and they're filling up sooner and sooner. <laughs> um, especially since COVID hit last year, um, a lot of farms like doubled their CSA share amounts, and we're kind of scrambling to um, get enough shares out there for everybody. So if you're interested in that, now is the time. <laughs> right, now <laughs> is the time. That. And Seward Co-op has got um, a great, uh, they have some list of um, CSAs available. Um, you can go there. The Minneapolis, Minnesota Homegrown has, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, um, Minnesota um, uh, Minnesota, Minnesota grown. Minnesota yep. grown. <laughs> There's also homegrown Minneapolis, but Minnesota grown has a, oh, yeah. a very comprehensive list of all the CSAs. Um, yeah. And uh, but an- another thing is that buying local actually can decrease food waste. Yeah, I think this is pretty interesting. Um, there has been um, some really interesting studies done about how when we see where our food comes from, we waste less. So especially, I think the highest is like if we grow our own food, um, we, you know, when you've nurtured this, like a seedling through and you've, you know, you're growing this broccoli, you are very much less likely to throw out half of that broccoli instead of take the time to put it in the freezer or use it and eat it somehow incorporated into your meals. And just that act alone is going to decrease food waste. Um, But if you know the farmer that grew it, um, you're also going to make more of an effort to use that food. Right. And it's not wrapped in single-use plastic, which is really bumming me out right now. (laughs) Single-use plastic is just driving me crazy. Uh, Yeah, uh, it's a... Yeah, it's a whole different experience going to, you know, your farmer's market versus, and, you know, bring your own bags, of course, (laughs) but there's, they're just not, they don't have like things, you know, what wrapped in plastic, but then also they have like the styrofoam underneath it or something. It just, that makes me cringe. Yeah, it's just not I know. Necessary. I'm, I'm just I'm cringing yeah. at, a, at a lot of it too, and um, but you know um, from from farm to table, over forty percent of the food grown in the United States is wasted, um, and so you know, um, in in our yard, if we don't eat the berries, then the birds do. <laughs> You know, it's right. just it's just it's just a completely different system. And then plus, there's the idea of composting. So you, um, so you bring back into the garden. So it's a regenerative cycle. Absolutely, and I think well that ties into the permaculture thing that you're very aware of. Um, being able to keep on your same land that that food waste, um, that garden waste, and recycle it. Um, so that you can then grow good food again just makes so much sense. And I will give a little plug for backyard chickens here, too. Yes. Man, they create some awesome garden compost for you. (laughs) Yeah, so tell us about your chickens. 
oh, well, we, we love our little backyard girls, little coop full of crazy girls. They are a riot to watch. Um, we love them very much. Um, they're definitely like kind of an integral part of our um, our backyard and our, our growing season and how we garden, for sure. Um, they keep the edges of the garden clean from pests that might come in. They are really good at eating Japanese beetles. Oh. <laughs> Um, they, yeah, they will eat a lot of, uh, I grow a lot of brassicas, a lot of different broccolis and cauliflowers and cabbages. And they love the extra outer leaves where a lot of times you'll end up composting a lot of that. I mean, broccoli leaves are technically edible too. And I do, um, chop up and stir fry a lot of the more tender leaves, but the chickens will eat down just about everything. They eat the food scraps and then they just create this really nice, um, chicken poop right? <laughs> and once you compost it it does need to sit for a while um i usually don't use it until the following spring um to let it settle and to decompose enough to let out some of that ammonia um but then it, it is really a great addition to your gardens and i know I, I don't remember the details well enough but i know that some people have really documented um the power of chickens to improve uh, the plants that they um cohabitate with yeah, and you know, I tend to keep them out of the garden itself because I'm not good at fencing off my individual beds. I just have one big open space. So they more stay on the edges of the garden where I'm growing most of my food, but I do let them in in the fall to kind of do a cleanup round. <laughs> Because then again, I won't be planting until the spring, and any manure that they drop um, has time to kind of incorporate into the soil and not be hot, it's called, um, with too much ammonia in there. Right, right. So it's all about yeah. building better soil and, and really improving the soil. Um, the other thing that is important is skipping the herbicides, pesticides, and fungicides. Why is that? Yeah. And, oh, my gosh, well, I I mean, well, chemicals just affect us in so many different ways, and um I looked this back up, um, and we've got – I'm not really a numbers person, mm -hmm. but I, I looked this back up, and I think you mentioned this too, that um, with the EPA, way back um, before 1990 even, it was 30% of insecticides, 60% of herbicides, and 90% of fungicides were considered carcinogenic. And we've known that for that long, and it's still taking companies, um, the big chemical companies um, – Man, they're fighting it because they want, you know, they're really not interested in growing good food. <laughs> they're interested in selling products. So we just need to be aware uh, that maybe what we're being sold isn't exactly um, best for planet Earth or, you know, our kiddos coming up next. We've had a lot of stories on this, a lot of interviews. Russ Henry, um, we um, talking about Rachel Carlson's, Carson's um, uh, Silent yeah. Spring and... I mean, I just want to sigh it out because we've known for so long. I mean, it's like, <laughs> like people should know some things, right? You should know that if you have an electric grid and it gets cold, uh, that could cause a lot of problems if you don't winterize it. There's some things that people should know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we should right. know that the oh, dangers, the dangers of these chemicals that are being sold 
they're just it, it, it's it, it, it's something that um, it's it's really hard to know about because it causes so many problems in our society. I mean, there's been three now these major cases against Monsanto where when the juries look at it like, yeah, that causes cancer. And yet you walk into the big box stores and there's a bunch of here's how to kill your soil. Here's how to kill insects. We're in the yeah. we're in the midst of a mass extinction of insects. And we can walk into our stores with murder more insects. Do it so you're neighbors like you so you're a good neighbor and it's just i mean how do we create something that's better because that's just not very uh effective it's not it's not efficient um yeah i think the answer is like grow a garden (laughs) once you start gardening you just realize how everything truly in nature is so interconnected and dependent on each other that if you take out insects because you don't want to get whatever then you're you're taking out an an important link in the whole process. That's why, um, yeah, you just you need all the the pieces. And I think permaculture hits on that. I think companion planting hits on that. Um, and I think once you start gardening and you see the kind of I don't know. This is going to sound cheesy, but it's so true. The magic of yeah. how food grows. Um, you you want to keep that going. You don't want to mess with that because nature really knows what she's doing, right? So if we kind of help her along and we I, I look at it as that we get to be a part of growing food with nature um that's that's something that shouldn't be taken lightly and that's you know if we mess it up too much more we're we're not going to be around to <laughs> Uh, right. to see what happens next. It's, we're there. Yeah, and that relationship with nature is our birthright. And I, I, you know, I started the stories talking a little bit about Indian farmers because they're um, today. Yeah. Today's there's news about um, they're actually blocking the trains. And um, so you know, uh, yeah, over eighty percent of the uh, farms in India are small farms. They're about five acres, and so people are mm-hmm. fighting to keep that alive and fighting. They don't want the corporate control over their food system, and. Um, yeah. You know, things are not, I mean, things, all these issues are complex. But that's the other thing about gardening that kind of teaches you. The world is complex. It's okay. (laughs) Right. And how lucky are we that we get to garden in a time and a place that um, we, it's not, like our lives aren't dependent on if these potatoes come out without something wrong with them, but that we can learn from the garden and even if we um, make a lot of mistakes. And mistakes are the way we learn, right? So, right. you know, I would say get out there and try to grow something and see, you know, see what happens. You might kind of get hooked. As, yeah. I mean, a lot of people got hooked last year with being home more with COVID. There's just been a huge surge in in gardeners. Yeah, and so... And, yeah, we're going to need to take another break, but we'll be back and we'll talk more about um, some gardening tips. Uh, we'll, we'll wrap up, but also the connection of mental health. I mean, it's just, oh, it, yeah. it, it's, I mean, it feels grounded, but it's such a, it's free. <laughs> it's mental health. Absolutely. And, and there's a lot of uh, community resources out there, too, if you don't have land. And um, when we come back, I want to make sure we talk about container gardens and, and if someone's in an apartment, how they can do a little bit, you know, because it can be as simple as one um, cherished plant. I mean, I had a, someone who was on the show and he said, you know, even my spider plant makes me happy. <laughs> So you're listening to Food Freedom Radio. We're talking with Michelle Bruin, who has the website forkinthedirt.com.
Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and joining us today is uh, Michelle Bruin, and she has the website forkinthedirt.com, forksinthedirt.com. Welcome back. It's our last segment. And so one of the things we want to make sure we talk about is now is the time to think about gardening. And last year, because of COVID, because gardening was more important, there was actually some shortage of seeds. So what should people do? I mean, which is kind of a great, you know, problem to have for for people in general. It, so many people were starting to garden, but um, I don't want to like make a mad rush to the <laughs> to the stores or anything or online. But it's a good idea if you kind of have an idea of what you want to plant to maybe start looking for those seeds sooner rather than later, um, either online or um, in your local stores. I know you know, I do have a a pretty fun to look at um, blog post about different seed catalogs and the companies that have free catalogs to send out. Um, but I would, of course, you know, suggest looking online instead of sending the paper copies to you, if, if at all possible. Um, and I would also recommend looking into local seed libraries. Um, Minnesota has a great number of really well-stocked seed libraries. And what a seed library is, in a gist, is a place where you can check out um, seeds for free. And usually they are um, not usually, often, they're in a library um, setting. So right now, a lot of them are online only, and so you're kind of... But these seed librarians, man, they are committed, they are making it happen, um, and they will get you the seeds. So it's it's a really wonderful way to be able to grow um, for free and some locally collected seeds as well. And saving seeds is just a way of deepening the relationship you have with the plants. I mean, you're growing the same plant year after year. You've kind of babied the the, the seed. I actually feel like it's a way of me being reciprocal with my um, tomato plants that, you know, they want to – they want their – they want their future generations to do well, so saving their seeds. For sure, that's what yeah. seeds. Yeah, that's their. I mean, nature's got it figured out, right? I mean, they these seeds are self. Um, they will keep going as long as we we help them out just a little bit. Um, yeah, it's a it's a really fun thing to be able to show your kids or whatever too. I mean, that you save this this pumpkin seed in the fall and then you get to plant it again and. That does it deepens your relationship in a way that not a whole lot else that we get to do, you know, in today's modern society. It, there's not a lot of other ways to to get that kind of level of connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and um, so you have some classes coming up, and one um, is salad container gardens, and of course, a salad container garden is something you can do if you um, don't have access to a yard. Yeah, and it's a fun way to be able to start seeds a little earlier indoors. Um, Usually, if we're going to be starting seeds indoors for like tomatoes and peppers and stuff, I really do recommend that you have a grow light. But um, lettuces and and greens in general don't really need grow lights to get started. So it's also something that you can start if you've got some, you know, seed starting potting soil and any kind of a container and some seeds. Um, and a south-facing window, right? So within uh, two weeks, I would say we will have enough light to really let those um, salad greens grow without extra lighting, which is pretty fun because salad greens also can hold um, or can take a lot of cooler temperatures than we usually give them credit for. So you can be moving um, a pot of lettuce in and out, you know, by the end of March, um, in April and let it get that sunlight outside 
and then bring it in if it's going to, you know, go below freezing at night. Um, but you'll be harvesting stuff, you know, six to eight weeks after. Six to eight weeks. And if you want to do microgreens, um, you can buy the microgreen seeds. And it's even faster, right? One or two weeks. And you can just put a few little microgreens on on your scrambled eggs. or um, Yeah. Oh, there's nothing like eating green. Like when you can see snow outside the window <laughs> right where you're... <laughs> Where your baby plants are growing. It's something it's something Minnesotans are very proud of, I found out, <laughs> for sure. So, yeah. So I also do, like, a companion planting class and a vegetable garden design class, which are just ways to kind of think about what you want to grow and where and, you know, different garden designs and different ways to bring in kind of the science and the art of companion planting, bringing different plants together. And I like in Mother Earth News, you had an article about gardening tips with kids. So tell us a little bit about that. You, you garden with your kids, and what are what are some ideas? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you spend a lot of time in your garden, your kids have to come find you, right? <laughs> <laughs> so they, you know, they definitely enjoy harvesting more than weeding. I think, like you know, most of us really. Um, but they they kind of get the idea that if you take care of this early on. Um, and weed when they're little, like things are, things go a lot easier. Um, you know how I garden with kids and I get to help out a little bit at the school gardens and stuff too, which is just so fun to be able to get excited all over again of gardening when you see how excited the kids get over seeing like seeds germinate and pop up and, and that they get to eat this different kind of cucumber or different kind of lettuce that they've never had before. And, you know, they get to see how much better it tastes themselves um there's really something there is something magical about that too i i think anyway um but i definitely would suggest if you're gardening with your kids um a lot of people will say oh give them their own garden space and let them be responsible for it and for us that really hasn't worked i would say work on a garden space together with your kids so that you can kind of help them take up the slack sometimes because you don't want it to be like a you know, oh, look, nothing happened here at the end of the season. You want them to have a really good first experience with this. So it's a, it's definitely um, something I would recommend is to have a garden that you all work on together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I'm, I almost have to separate because we get kind of competi- competitive over box garden space. <laughs> so no, that's for that. No, that's for my flowers. <laughs> well, I've got younger kids. I've got younger. <laughs> um, so uh, last two minutes of the show, anything else you'd like to say? Oh, you know, I think local food can be um, kind of like a, feel like a fad almost. And it's really so much more than that when you take these baby steps. Um, you can really make a huge change over time, kind of, as I say, and I know it's cheesy, but it's true, one farm or one crop and one recipe at a time. Um, yeah, combining to to know your farmer and growing your own, is is it's going to change the world. Yeah, and um, and for the better, I mean, what is life for? I mean, it's to eat, it's to be with the kids, it's to have joy and comfort, and we've um, we've we've created these systems that uh, just aren't. They're supposedly supposedly, and especially going back to a little bit to what's happening with Indian farmers right now. You know, modern agriculture is supposed to be so highly highly efficient, but is it effective? Is it effective at yeah. improving our love and improving our making our you know making creating a thriving world for all? You know, and so and local yeah. food is effective at creating a thriving world yeah. or can be. You know, there's. It- 
Yeah, and I think if you think about the farmers who have got, you know, corporate farms versus a farmer who is a family farmer, a small-scale farmer, the small-scale farmer is looking at being sustainable, and sustainable practices are good for everybody, plus the earth, whereas corporations are usually not as worried about sustainability as they are about profit. And that's just the bottom, you know, that's just how it is. So that's just how it is. We and get to choose, like, three times a day with our meals, what we What, what we, we do. Want. And so, profitability, healthy vibrant world. That's what we all want. Um, so thank you so much, Michelle. Um, your website, forksinthedirt.com. Um, and thank you for listening to Food Freedom Radio.